<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Man, I'm going to get real fancy today with two stands. Oh, y'all can keep talking. It's okay. I got to figure this out. I just want to try something. It makes me look like a diva, but I'm not. What's up, Hernandez? How's it going? Think I didn't see you, bro? All right, guys. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Yeah? Cool. My name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, man, a couple of things before we jump into our time. Number one, I hope you grabbed a cup of coffee. We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture uh, today, uh, so I hope you're awake and ready to go for that. Uh, number two, uh, on your chair, if you are new or if you've joined us for uh, the past couple of weeks, uh, on your chair there are these things called connect cards. They say connect on them. Go ahead and fill one of those out. Drop it in the offering basket or visit the connect desk after service. We'd love to hang out with you uh, or answer any of your questions. And in addition to that, if you're new uh, or if you need a Bible as we uh, dive into Scripture later uh, uh, in our time, uh, there should be some Bibles on the chairs or in the rows where you guys are at. If they are not there, we have Bibles in the back at the Connect desk. Uh, man, you can use it. You can keep it. That is our gift to you. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for visiting us this morning. That's, that's kind of a few things before we jump into our time. Uh, go ahead and open or load your Bible to Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. We're going to unpack a ton of scripture today. We're going to look at uh, several things in light of what Paul has to say to Titus. Um, and so while you're turning to that section, while you're getting your notes and your pens ready to go, uh, let me kind of recap a little bit of our time in this series. So we started Titus about two weeks ago, and the letter to Titus is written by the Apostle Paul, and it is written in a very urgent and personal matter. Paul is writing to this dude named Titus. He has a very close and personal relationship with him. He refers to him and another guy named Timothy as his spiritual sons, as his spiritual children. Uh, you could tell that he has this deep fondness for them. He has this deep relationship with them. He has discipled them. He has brought them along some of his missionary journeys. Uh, and so he has this very tight relationship with Titus. In addition to that, one of the things that we see throughout this letter is the urgency that comes from Paul to Titus. Titus is uh, in an island off the, uh, the coast of Greece called Crete, uh, and he is there doing two things, planting churches and establishing church leadership. And so Paul is writing to him with urgency in light of those two things. So he is talking a lot about uh, church leadership and doctrine and the importance of those two and why he is sent there. So what we see Titus do is we're seeing him appoint elders. Last week we talked about uh, the role and qualifications of an elder. So one of the things that Titus has been entrusted with is to be in Crete and to establish, appoint elders in those churches on the island of Crete. This dude is crazy busy uh, in the sense that many of the churches on the island of Crete were very young. And so Titus gets sent in to establish leadership, to to appoint elders. And 
what essentially he does or the pattern that we believe he, he, uh, uh, he is demonstrating is that he gets to a local church, he raises up leaders, he appoints elders, he makes sure that the church is nice, up and running and healthy, and then he exits and goes to the next church and does it all over again. This guy is a church planter. That's some of the things that we walked through last week. The week previous to that, Paul was in very endearing in his introduction to Titus, but as I mentioned earlier, he was also very intentional and urgent in his message, kind of walking through God's plan of salvation and also walking through why he was writing to Titus and the importance of why Titus needs to get things going, needs to get things off the ground in Crete. Today we're going to find ourselves in, in verses 10 through 16. We're closing up chapter 1 today. And we're ultimately going to look at the opposite of what we taught on last week. If last week we looked at the role, the function, and the qualifications of an elder, of a godly pastor, of a godly leader, this week we're, we're going to be diving into, or today what we're going to be diving into, is going to be false teachers. Remember, Paul is writing to Titus not only to tell him what to do, but also what to look out for, and how to identify certain things, and how to address certain issues and why it's important to address those concerns and those issues and why it's important for Titus to develop other people to identify those concerns and issues, ultimately so that they can be addressed, ultimately so that people would be pointed to the work of Jesus, and ultimately so that it would be God's glory alone and not man's glory, uh, if that's what you'd like to call it, but uh, that, that would be ultimately demonstrated. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 10 through 16, and then I'm just going to dive right into uh, our time this morning. So here we go. This is Titus 1, verses 10 through 16. This is what Paul says. He writes, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. He definitely does not hold back. Join me in prayer. God, as we dive into your word, my prayer is that, uh, number one, number one, that I would be set aside and that it would be your Holy Spirit uh, at work. Number two, God, I pray that we would find confidence and conviction um, from your word, from the work of your Holy Spirit. And in light of that, number three, that it would, that it would impact our conduct. That is, not only who we are, but what we do. That how we address others and one another is significant to our confidence and our conviction. God, I pray that you 
would be glorified in this time, that you, your work, and your word would be glorified in our time of worship through the preached word. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters and those who are here visiting with us. I pray that you would be at work in them, that your spirit would be stirring their hearts toward uh, you being the center of their affection. I ask that you would work in and through them this morning. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, here we go. First area, the first section that we're going to look at, if you look at the notes, the first thing that we're going to look at is the fact that we must be ready to contend. This is going to dive, this is going to kind of launch us into our time in this section. That we as Christians must be ready to contend. That is, that we must be ready to defend our belief. That we must be ready to defend the gospel. That we must be ready to stand firm in our faith. That we must be ready to protect our faith. You see, when we as Christians say we believe, that isn't a statement or a position of opinion, but truth. And so we need to protect it. We need to stand firm and guard sound doctrine. We must always be ready to contend. And the reason we must always be ready to contend is because we want to protect who we are in Christ. We want to protect that because of who we understand Christ to be, that is, Redeemer and King. We contend to not only protect ourselves, but others, to persuade others, and ultimately to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. You see, when we read in Scripture that God has called us to a ministry of reconciliation, that's not the only thing He has called us to. He has also called us to confrontation. And that's hard for many of us. Because that means it's going to get awkward. That means it's going to get muddy. That means it's going to get murky. That means it's going to be a conversation that you don't want to have. But it's significant. It's important. It's necessary. And ultimately, it is biblical. And so we contend or we stand firm or we guard sound doctrine because we believe that the person and work of Jesus is sufficient for all believers. And it is glorious enough for all who don't know him for them to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If we narrow down our scope to the New Testament, we see that false teachers, that is people, those who preach and teach a false and different gospel, will rise up from within our midst, will rise up from within the church. Listen to Peter. This is 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is what he says. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Sound doctrine is incredibly important for the believer because we have been called to stand firm and guard it. We have been called to contend for our faith. We have been called not only to a ministry of reconciliation, but also confrontation. So that, so that the person, 
work and glory of Jesus and Jesus alone would be proclaimed, protected, advanced, and expanded. And that's really difficult. Some of us might hear that, man, we're going to be called to some sort of confrontation, and all of a sudden we stiffen up, we scoot up in our chairs, and that's not exactly who I am, and that's not really what I want to be about, and I can understand your hesitancy. But if we are grounded in who Jesus says we are and in the work of Christ, if we are rooted in his word, then we must protect it. We must contend for it. We must be ready to defend it. And we must be sound in our doctrine. Well, what does it mean to be sound in our doctrine? That means that we are to be rooted in the work and word of God. That's what it means to be rooted in sound doctrine. Paul goes on in this section to give a bunch of uh, behavioral or characteristics of false teachers, what they do and uh, how they've affected others. So we're going to look at that. I've read through them. And so let's look at false teachers. I'm going to give you five things in light of verses 10 through 15 and 16. Five things about false teachers. I'll pause every once in a while but we're going to dive right into them. The first thing about false teachers is that they are deceived. Paul writes that they are insubordinate, that they are empty talkers and deceivers. What this tells us is that false teachers, number one, one of the first things that we can see is that they are not submitted to authority, that they are not submitted to authority, which means that they are not being held accountable, that what, what is central to them isn't the work of God, it is their ego. And because of that, they have useless words. They have useless words. Number two, in their own deception, they have deceived others. Paul continues by saying they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families. So not only are they deceived themselves, but they are bringing, persuading, swaying others, upsetting whole families in light of their own deception. Number three, they promote self-glory and self made righteousness. We'll park here briefly. Continuing, he says, they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So what this tells us is that they have impure motivations, self-glory and self-made righteousness. They are turning people away from the work of God and to themselves. They are putting all of that attention onto themselves. When we read through the context of this letter, many historians suggest that uh, when he says that they are teaching for shameful gain, just like Titus was sent to plant churches, there are other missionaries who are there in Crete, and churches are financially supporting those missionaries as they minister to people, as they do the work of ministry, and these false teachers hate that that's the reputation being built, so what they are doing is teaching for shameful gain. In other words, they are trying to cut off that financial support to those missionaries so that those finances would then be turned to them. They teach for shameful gain, that their motivations are impure, that they are all about their self-glory and their self-made righteousness. Here would be a, a tip, a side note. 
Any teacher who takes away from the person, work, and glory of Christ and turns you to himself is a false teacher. If they are turning you away, if they are turning people away from the work and the promises and words of Christ, they are teaching falsely. Number four, they lack conviction. In other words, they are setting their own agenda because they lack accountability and therefore they add to the gospel of Jesus. If anyone is adding to the gospel of Jesus, if anyone is even taking away from the work of Jesus, then they are denying what he has come to do. That they are denying what he's already done. And finally, number five, their theology doesn't match their conduct. We see that in the last verse Paul says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. That they profess Christ, but that they don't actually possess him. A false teacher is incredibly focused on drawing people away from God or is focused on adding to the word and work of God. So the warning for us, a practical implication for us, is that one, we must be rooted in the word and work of God. That's number one. All right? And number two, we must be cautious. We must be cautious that just because it's in a Christian bookstore or a Christian website and on Christian shelves with the title Christianity and books are under it does not make it biblical. All right? Even if they sprinkle verses here and there. Okay? We must be rooted in the work and word of God. Number two, we must be careful. Number three, we must be ready to contend and defend the gospel. Okay? So in light of that, Paul goes into the practical. So what do we do? Right? We've identified some things regarding uh, false teachers. So what do we do? This is where it gets a little uncomfortable. Okay? If we're looking at the practical, then, as I mentioned earlier, we've been called to a ministry of reconciliation, but also of confrontation. Paul gives us two things. There are two practical things that are going to happen. The first one, he says, is to rebuke them. He says to rebuke them. He goes on by saying, Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke sounds scary. Rebuke sounds uncomfortable. Rebuke sounds like it's someone else's job. But it's necessary. And rebuke is an extension of grace. Rebuke is an extension of grace. To rebuke means to correct. Rebuke implies, then, confrontation. And finally, rebuke is gracious. See, many times, many Christians, maybe not all, but many Christians, when they think about rebuke, they'll agree with one in three. They'll say, yes, rebuke does mean to correct, and rebuke is gracious. It just means it's someone else's job, not necessarily mine. Because when we start coming to confrontation, it makes it uncomfortable because it's awkward. And if it's awkward, that means it's going to be weird. And that means there's some muddy waters. And that means we need to walk through it. And that means I need to say something about this. But nevertheless, it is necessary that we are to rebuke false teachers sharply. But 
Or I shouldn't say but. I should say and. And he gives us the why, right? In other words, Paul doesn't just say rebuke them sharply, period, moving on, right? He gives us the why, right? He goes on to say, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So the second part of this practical working of rebuke, the second part of this means not only are we rebuking because it's necessary, because it's biblical, because, man, it implies correction, confrontation, and ultimately is an extension of grace, but the purpose behind this rebuke is so that we would point others to sound faith, so that we would point them ultimately to fix their eyes on the finished work of Jesus. That's why we do it. That's what makes it an extension of grace, not how many points you have because you're right or how many verses you have memorized, but so that you would point them to the person and work of Jesus, so that you would point them to what is sound in the faith. I love how he continues that. He doesn't just end at the rebuke, but he says so that we would point them to be sound in the faith. And this includes false teachers, but it also applies, man, to people who are drifting, perhaps Christians who are backslidden. Listen to the verse the whole way through. He says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith and not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. What Paul is saying is that, number one, people are turning away from the truth. So the truth has been communicated to them, but now they are being persuaded by false teachers who are adding to that truth. They are being persuaded about things like Jewish myths. Some say that it is certain rituals. Some say that they need to do other things in order to enhance or advance their salvation. They are adding to the work of God. And some people have been swayed by that. That might be you. Perhaps you have been swayed. Or perhaps you are backslidden. Because either you've listened to a lie or someone has told you that there are these other things that you must do. That there are these other things that you are incomplete in. Adding to the work of God takes away from what Christ has done. Therefore, we must rebuke graciously. We must rebuke in confrontation sometimes. And we must rebuke to correct. This is false teachers. These are people who are drifting. It's an extension of of grace. See, when we rebuke, if we continue the conversation about it being an extension of grace, that's exactly what, what grace does. Grace meets us where we're at. Grace meets us in the murky, muddy waters. When you rebuke someone, it's not because you're better than or you know more or at you're at the top. When you rebuke someone, it's because you're, tr- you're, you're, you're inserting yourself into the mess and murky water that they are in so that you can proclaim the excellencies of Christ so that you can point them to his work. And you are meeting them where they're at. And yes, it is uncomfortable. It is weird sometimes. 
but you are doing it as an extension of grace. That's the whole point of grace. That's what it's done. When we look at the grace of God, it's that he entered into human history, living a sinless life, dying a sinner's death, and then giving us the grace that we cannot earn. So that when we rebuke others, man, we are inserting ourselves into the mess that is life for the purpose and glory of Christ so that they would then turn, so that they would repent and turn and follow and fix their eyes on Christ, not you. That's why we do it. We do it just with such importance. This is what Jude 23 says, to save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That we're jumping into the mess that they are in and snatching them out with the word of God because we are extending grace, because we love them, because if we look at our lives of what God has done, he did the same thing. He did the same thing. So embrace rebuke. Don't reject it. And I say that from a place of it's easier said than done. <laughs> right? I understand. But as believers, we must embrace rebuke. We must not reject rebuke. Each one of us will be put in a position where we'll have to contend for our faith. Right? <clears throat> Verse 16, I think. Verse 15, this is where we'll spend uh, a little bit more of our time. Verse 15, I want to read this the whole way. This is what Paul says. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Walking through the teaching of false teachers, walking through who a false teacher is, what they do, walking through what sound doctrine is, even walking through some of the practical realities that we're going to be faced with, like rebuke. All of that is cool. The concern that I have is this, uh, the concern that I have is, is one that I think many of us struggle with in the sense that when we talk about false teachers, even when we talk about Christians that are backslidden, one of the things that tends to happen is we immediately become self-righteous in the sense that, man, I know some of those teachers. I saw them on the TV. I saw them preaching wherever, right? Maybe you have a couple of names uh, at the top of your mind that when we specifically start talking about false teachers, you're like, man, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Yes, I know them. I'm going to rebuke them on Twitter or Facebook, whatever you guys use, right? What I love about verse 15 is Paul gives us a beautiful reminder of who we are first. That before we start jumping into like warming up our wrists for the keyboard, right? Before we start jumping into our journal and start saying, I need to talk to so-and-so, right? Before we get there, right? Paul reminds us of a beautiful truth. He says, to the pure, where is it? He says, to the pure, all things are pure. So if you belong to Jesus, I want to talk to you for a minute. 
If you belong to Jesus, I got, I got two things for you. Number one, the believer is pure. In other words, if you belong to Jesus, you are pure because you have been made pure. Emphasis on made. You didn't do it yourself. You have been made pure. Second, for the believer, you are pure because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus, not your own. Number three, for the believer, you have been made pure because you were first sought after. That is a beautiful reminder of purity. That is a beautiful reminder of why the believer is pure. So before we jump into the self-righteousness and the Facebook accounts and all that stuff, I'm just going to use another word, all that stuff, we must first be reminded of how we became pure. It was through the imputed righteousness of another. That is that Jesus on the cross has taken on your sin and in exchange has given you his righteousness. The righteousness that you have is not your own. Remember that. Remember that before you start getting ready and loading up. Remember that. The righteousness you have is not your own. You have been made pure by the sacrifice, obedience, and blood of another. Number two, make sure your motivation is holy. Make sure your motivation is holy. Actually, let me backtrack. Let's stay on number one. I want to read Matthew 15 as a reminder of what makes us pure. This is Jesus speaking. This is Matthew 15, 11, and then verses 18 through 20. He goes on to say, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So it's not what comes from the outside in. It's what's inside. You see, and the beauty of the work of Jesus, right, is that as he calls sinners to himself— He is the one that cleanses them. He is the one that redeems us. It is the Holy Spirit who transforms our heart. Purity is a result. Purity is a work done in a person. Right? It's not something we've obtained. Going on to number two, that our motivation must be motivated, or we should have uh, motivation driven by holiness. Think about it. If, 
You are looking to approach others so that you can rebuke them, but your motivation is impure or your motivation is fueled by bitterness that has consumed you or it is fueled by self-righteousness that is consuming you, then you are no different. You are no different. In doing that, One, not only are you just trying to beat someone up, but because of your motivation, it suggests that the work of Jesus is not sufficient. Let me remind you that the work of Jesus is sufficient. There is nothing to add to the work of Jesus, and to do so is to say that Jesus wasn't rich enough or generous enough to pay for our sin. When we do that, that is what we are preaching. You don't have to add anything, but you do have to be motivated by grace and holiness. You are motivated because you know what Christ has done, that grace has met us where we are at, and it has pointed us to the work of Jesus. And so when we rebuke, we are motivated by grace. We are motivated by holiness. We are motivated by the work and word of Jesus. And so our aim is to point others to him. Whether it be some obvious false teacher or a friend who's drifting, we meet them where they're at. We proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. We point them to his work, to his promises, and what he has ultimately done. That is what we do. Because man, if we don't pay attention to verse 15, we can easily look at everything else and be like, oh man, I'm ready to start that Facebook group or I'm ready to jump online or have certain conversations. I'm texting that person right now. Just tell me to send, pastor. No, right? We are not there. We are first talking about a beautiful reminder for the believer regarding purity that you have been made pure by the blood of Jesus. And number two, that we are to be motivated by grace and holiness, not self-righteousness. That we are to be motivated by grace and holiness. In addition to this, let's keep going with verse 15. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled, oh, But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Man, so you're not just inserting yourself into the life of someone who's a false teacher or even to a Christian who's backsliding. You're also inserting yourself into the life of someone who does not know Jesus for the purpose of making his name great and proclaiming his excellencies. So this isn't just this like giant Christian culture circle kind of conversation. This also applies to people who do not know Jesus. Again, our motivations in this verse, in verse 15, are poked, our motivations are prodded, our motivations are held to us with a mirror in front of us. And so here's what I would close with. For the Christian, and even the one who is backsliding or drifting, my prayer is that Jesus and Jesus alone 
is sufficient for you. The gospel and nothing else. That this would ultimately, today, this, these verses, God's word would ultimately lead you to repentance. Maybe that's your day today. It's a day of repentance. Scripture says that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Maybe that is where we need to be today during a time, our time in prayer. We need to be led to repent so that we would worship God, worship his excellencies, and repent of our sin. Maybe that is where we are led today. Believer, that might be where you're at right now. But if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, and I've been up here 30 minutes screaming, my prayer right now is that God would be stirring the faith in Christ alone in you so that you would respond with repentance, with trust, and with worship. And I would encourage you with Romans 5, the Apostle Paul is the one writing this as well, Romans 5, 6, and he says, for why, while, excuse me, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do not believe the lie that you need to go figure stuff out and then consider Jesus. You don't go take a shower when you're clean. Right? Do not believe the lie. That's adding to it. That you can come to know Jesus now. That you can be made pure. And my prayer is that he would be stirring faith in Christ in you so that you would respond, again, with repentance, with trust, and inevitably in worship. Church, I would remind you, and this is my last thing, the same thing I mentioned when it comes to being pure. That you are pure because you have been made pure through the imputed righteousness of another and because you have been sought after. So when, not if, when you rebuke, when you rebuke, make sure you defend, make sure you stand firm, make sure you contend in the faith, and make sure that your motivation is fueled with grace and holiness for the work and word of God. Join me in prayer. God, as we begin to close our time, as we begin to close our time, Lord, uh, right now, in light of your word, right now, in light of your word, Lord, I pray that repentance would be a sweet, sweet reminder to those who belong to you, to those who have missed it, to those who have been doing other things extra, adding to your work. And repentance would be a sweet reminder that the person and work of your son, Jesus, is completely sufficient.
God, I also pray that as we begin to work and wrestle through, man, what's it going to look like to rebuke? What's it going to look like to make some of these or have some of these confrontations? God, man, I, I ask for grace and strength and wisdom in those conversations. I think it's easy to look at your word and see what we must do, and that doesn't always necessarily make it easier. So God, I ask that you would give us grace in our speech, that you would give us strength uh, in, in the conversation, and that you would give them wisdom in the words. God, there are those who don't know you who are here. God, and I pray that you would be stirring their hearts to respond with repentance, to respond with trust, and to inevitably worship you. God, I pray that you would stir in their hearts that there is nothing that they need to go and do before they consider you, that there is nothing that they've done that you haven't paid for, but that they would simply sit in your word when you say that the kindness, that your kindness leads us to repentance. So God, on one end, this is a beautiful day of a reminder. On the other one, Lord, I pray that this would be a day of rejoicing. That we would ultimately find our hope in you, in your word, in your word alone. God, as we transition into a time of tithes and offerings, God, I pray that uh, this would be a time where we, uh, where we are continuing to worship, where we give you our stuff, and that it is a tangible demonstration of our worship. It is a tangible demonstration of the work you have done in us. And so, God, I pray that we would release the control we think we have and that we would glorify you for the purpose of expanding your mission, of expanding your kingdom so that more and more would come to know who Jesus is and worship him. God, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.